Hi, and welcome to the Brewery FM podcast hosted by Scott Hogue and Dan Usher, just two techies with a giant ocean between us, talking clouds, hops, and technology. This is episode two, recorded on 13 February 2015. Music used under Creative Commons license from Subway Sonic Beats Cloudy. Good morning, Dan. Good morning, Scott. Or is it actually afternoon? I guess it's evening for you. I'm it's trying a to tough keep... for me to deal with. You forget that uh, I don't sleep, so I sleep on Sundays. Mm-hmm. Well, I think this is going to cause a point of contention for us uh, doing these these dual recordings like this. Um, you know, for me, it's it's Friday morning. Uh, it's a little bit sunny, but not really. Uh, we're looking at a nice high of 86 today, but I think it's the day before for you. So yes. time stamping these things is getting a, uh, to be a little bit of a strange event for me. So I, I got to say, man, it's kind of frustrating because you have this beautiful warm weather and then you rotate the planet and it's like you put it through some chillers or something because you're getting it in the 80s and we're getting it in the 30s. So if you could stop chilling it on the way and using that neat ice thing that you've got, you know, that just starting to screw with my uh, my life just in the sense that I don't like scraping windows of cars. Um, but then again, I didn't have a scraper until recently. So prior to that, it was, you know, just using the defroster and waiting for a while. So, but anyway, yeah, you're right. It is kind of, kind of screwy going across two oceans. If we're going East or one ocean, if we're going West, um, but uh, I think this time works, and hopefully, you know, folks that are pulling this down are able to listen to it uh, when they get a chance, and hopefully they've <clears throat> been able to go through and find it on whichever podcast software they use, whether for Windows, uh, iOS, or Android, or for those three BlackBerry users out there, maybe we'll get them as podcast subscribers as well. Uh, but <clears throat> anyway, you want to you wanna hop into the follow-up before we start uh, just going off into randomness? Sure, absolutely. So last week uh, you said you were going to head out to uh, Dogfish Ale House, take a look at some of that wonderful 120 that you like so much. How'd that whole thing go? So that was actually a little bit of a misfire, um, mostly because it's not until tomorrow night or tonight for you. Uh, So on the 13th of February, they were having what they call their Unlucky Lovers uh, 120 Tapping. So I initially thought it was uh, set up so that it would be, you know, you could go in and buy two bottles of 120. Uh, Little did I know, it's actually a a tapping of a keg, so no bottles involved. And they do have a limit on two glasses, so I guess two snifters per person. Um, Which, if you've had a 120-minute IPA before, you know that's still quite a lot of alcohol to uh, process through your system. So... Uh, I don't think I'm going to make it out tomorrow night or tonight or <clears throat> when the event happens, but hopefully Dogfish Head Alehouse will have a couple more of these 120-minute IPA tappings over the next couple months and weeks. One can always hope. I know you live for that stuff. Uh, uh, I took nice. a trip up to the bottle shop. You know, We talked about uh, craft brews and, and things like that last week. So I wanted to try something new, so uh, I grabbed a random... IPA off the shelf um, cost $18 for a uh, pint of it. Uh, bought that, came home, drank it. It was tasty. And then I threw the bottle out because it was tasty and I didn't want to have to go back and spend $18 a pint to drink that stuff. Uh, maybe next week I can come up with something that actually has a label that I can afford and, and, and maybe we can talk about that. But. Well, if it makes you feel any better, that was only $13.92 in the U.S. So that tells you uh, you shouldn't be paying the full $18. You should try and market it down to at least 14 mm, Yeah, so I'll, I'll continue to try and remind the Australians that they should peg to the U.S. dollar for everything. Yeah, I mean, things would be a little bit cheaper or you'd just go broke a little bit quicker. Um, but uh, you mentioned last week there was the MVP camp or Com camp where the MVPs got up and they talked about uh, some of the different Microsoft technologies that were going on. So why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Uh, sure. So, so that came across as a really great event, a nice free community event. Uh, anybody can attend it. It was hosted at the uh, Microsoft office here in Sydney. Uh, had a nice keynote from Jeff Alexander. He's a technical evangelist uh, for Microsoft out here. 
and he talked about some of the things that are going to be coming in uh, vNext for uh, Windows Server. Scared a lot of the room when he told everybody, you know, we've, we've got to get ready for this great new world of uh, orchestration and PowerShell and DSC. And, you know, immediately there were three hands that shot up in the front of the room and said, uh, hey, we're not Unix guys. We're not Linux guys. We're Windows guys. Where are you sending our GUIs to? Um, and I think, you know, over the next couple of years, getting that across to everyone that those really aren't important things uh, as IT pros uh, or really just as system operators. We've been looking at automation and all these things for a really long time. And, you know, Microsoft is starting to get serious about that. Uh, they are very serious about uh, making sure to push the messaging that we all learn PowerShell uh, and we learn how to stop clicking buttons and if we do have anything that's repeatable uh, let's go ahead and actually make sure that we can automate and, and orchestrate that in a, in a repeatable manner every time um, and this becomes really important you know as we stand up these systems we start to talk about uh, you know all these moves to the cloud and everything else you know how do, how do we actually make those palatable kind of experiences and, and a great way to do that is to go through and uh, automate those kind of things um, one of the other interesting things that they're going to do up here, um, uh, Jeff had a link on his blog to it uh, earlier this week. Um, for anybody who's out in Australia, actually it might apply to anybody on MVA, um, probably does, but I saw it on uh, Jeff's blog. Uh, they're going to go ahead and run a quick little contest uh, where folks can win a trip to uh, MS Ignite in May. So it's a Full paid-for trip, return flights, a little bit of spending cash, things like that. Um, all folks have to do is go ahead and sign up, uh, create an account on Microsoft Virtual Academy if they don't already have one. Uh, it's a great free training resource uh, with all sorts of computer-based training, um, presentations, videos, everything across the Microsoft stack. Uh, and uh, folks can go ahead and sign up for that. They get points for completing courses. Uh, they get some uh, points just for signing up. And all of that goes towards this little contest to win a trip out to Microsoft Ignite. So a uh, great way for uh, anyone to really get involved. Uh, if anything, uh, learn some new skills, uh, especially with some of this stuff around um, hybrids and PowerShell. Lot, you know, lots of great courses out there on those things. Yeah, so the MVA Heroes is what it looks like it's called. Um, it looks like it's a competition that is available uh, mostly for Australia, but I guess uh, it looks like there might be a couple others uh, floating around out there. So if you go out to Microsoft.com forward slash Australia forward slash MVA Heroes, uh, you can enter to win, and like you mentioned, that uh, signs you up for MVA. So I guess it's not necessarily something for us folks in the U.S. I figure uh, it's too close to home that they'll actually uh, give us the chance for that. But one of the kind of interesting things on that is it gives you a point for simply signing up to the MVA, and then if you complete a specified course, you'll get five points. If you go through an entire topic, you'll get an extra 20 points. So I guess there are some benefits if you're not using MVA today to go through this link. Uh, but I'm pretty certain that if you're a U.S. citizen or if you're not in Australia, uh, you will not actually be able to sign up to win. Or if you do win, uh, they may invalidate it. They might uh, look at it like a lottery ticket and say, nope, sorry, no potatoes for you. But uh, we've got that link out in the show notes for anybody that's interested for, I guess, uh, John Liu to win a chance to go to uh, Ignite. Because I want to say John's over there in Australia with you, right? Yep, he's out of Sydney as well. There, there's, there's quite a few of us who are stranded out here um, on this big island. Uh, so it's nice to see Microsoft giving a little bit of uh, love to, to, to the region and, and helping some folks uh, maybe escape on a holiday and, 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 and learn some new things. Uh, so some other things we had up in the follow-up, uh, good old Amazon Web Services and Identity Access Management. So I guess, uh, what was it, four days ago? I don't really quite remember when it was, but uh, it was, I guess 
1 a.m. here, so that probably meant it was doing some quick algebra, some calculus, what, 5 p.m. there? That would um, be correct, yes. So it was kind of one of those things where I was going through and trying to permission out a S3 bucket so we could put the MV or put the MP3 up. And uh, I can definitely say that the identity access management stuff for S3 was odd. And I say that because when you look at uh, identity access management for AWS, it seems pretty clear cut. You can go through, you can partition out a Amazon resource um, by the, what would be equivalent to a GUID, you know, to a specific user or group. Um, that was, that was fairly simple. But then if you go in and start poking around in the S3 controls, there's other identity access management stuff that doesn't seem to mesh up at all. So that's, it's kind of weird seeing the, I guess, discontinuity, but the continuity through the uh, Amazon resource numbers being able to help, I guess, act as glue. What's uh, what's kind of your take on the whole AWS identity access management side of things? It seems a little, seems almost like it's just kind of, they're trying to glue things back together as they go. So I am as always, well, AWS in general has always been a little bit geekier, uh, runs on top of, of Zen and, and very Linux focused. Uh, so when we look at, uh, you know, coming from our Windows world again of, of point and click GUIs and, and everything else, uh, it can be a little tough to wrap your head around and interact with. They definitely have some uh, some work to do in those spaces. And I, and I think the teams that build those products out understand that. They're, they're constantly iterating. Uh, one of the nice things about IAM is it underpins everything in AWS. Uh, so we really have this identity and access management system uh, that runs across the entire platform. Uh, and, and we don't have controls like that in Azure today. So when we start to talk about uh, role-based access control and getting truly granular, we can start to do that with applications in Azure AD. Uh, or, you know, we have this little concept of RBAC right now going on in the portal uh, but it's pretty much, you know, let, let's let somebody edit a resource. Let's let somebody kind of contribute to it or own it. Um, there are these very high level things. When we look at something like I am, we can get really granular in our policies. Uh, so even for something like S3, we can create a policy where someone can only do uh, put requests and go ahead and, and push new content into a bucket. Uh, we can give somebody the ability to put content in a bucket and download it, but not delete it. Uh, so, you know, we, we can get more and more granular with those. Uh, it's nice to have that kind of control. It gets a little confusing when, uh, you know, you need to wrap your head around the policies across the different services. Uh, and one of the other deficiencies of that has always been that S3 policies or, or those IAM policies uh, were tied to a user. Uh, they're going to change that a little bit too. They had an announcement earlier this week that we're going to have uh, managed policies introduced. So now we're going to be able to create one policy, associate that with uh, multiple IAM users uh, and have versioning across those policies and some other things. Uh, and Amazon's going to publish a kind of gallery of, of default policies for everybody to choose from. Uh, those are going to have uh, version control attached to them so uh, we can make changes and updates and choose uh, who gets the new policy, who runs on the old policy, that kind of thing. Um, hopefully that makes it a little bit easier. Uh, a little more palatable to work through some of those things. Uh, you know, I think everybody just needs to spend some time if they're if they're going to do anything with AWS uh, to step back and and understand uh, the whole IAM piece and what that means to all the services and the impacts it has. You know, it's kind of that 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 glue that holds everything together. So if you don't understand it and you just start provisioning things uh, out in the ether, uh, it can get away from you pretty quickly. My take on it is it's just kind of one of those things where looking at uh, what <clears throat> AWS built initially where each one of the different services was kind of out there and had its own uh, identity management component with it. Um, it was interesting to see how kind of the management portal, when you initially went in and did anything, you got that uh, access key and secret key. And then I guess, what, two or three years ago, they introduced the... Uh, overarching identity access management piece so that you could actually just use, uh, you know, usernames and passwords and then do that segregation of uh, rights and responsibilities. And it was probably more than two or three years ago, but 
it feels like it was two or three years ago. Um, whereas our friendly Azure neighborhood, uh, <laughs> Azure Active Directory was kind of the core that they built everything around. So uh, it's kind of a little bit of a different approach, I guess, as to how they put their clouds together. But uh, each one has its benefits. Each one has its deficiencies here and there. Um, interesting to see them continue to press forward. And I definitely, I'm interested to see, uh, <clears throat> you mentioned that announcement from AWS about the group management side of things. Um, hopefully you'll be able to uh, dig that announcement back up and we can toss that in the show notes as well. Uh, but <clears throat> speaking of show notes, you mentioned, uh, you know, kind of the, the fun of dealing with OneNote. And just as a aside to anybody listening, uh, we're using OneNote as our kind of our show note generator so that we can actually see things in real time. Uh, if Scott starts typing something, I'll see it pop up in my screen through the wonders of synchronization. And then likewise, you know, if I start typing something, Scott will see it tomorrow. Um, but that's just due to the fact that uh, Australia doesn't really have too much bandwidth, apparently. Um, but you mentioned, I guess it was last night for me, so yesterday morning for you, that... Uh, <clears throat> You had a little bit of an issue with OneNote. Do you want to go into that just a little bit and let everybody know uh, kind of what your pain is? I know you mentioned uh, the catchphrase of cloud is hard, which I thought cloud was nice and fluffy. <laughs> Clouds are fluffy. You lay your head on them. They're like a pillow. Um, yeah, you know, I, the cloud is hard. And uh, I was just, you know, using one of the consumer components uh, that Microsoft offers uh, basically OneDrive, not OneDrive for business, not anything for business, for cats, for dogs, that kind of thing. Uh, I opened up OneNote, hadn't opened it in a long time because I'm, I'm a huge Evernote fan. Uh, I really don't understand OneNote. I don't use it a ton, but I do use it for work here and there. Uh, working for a, a, a Microsoft partner, you know, we tend to use some of those solutions occasionally. Um, so like I said, I'm not a big fan of it, but fired it up, fired up my OneNote client here on my Mac. Uh, which, I, you know, I probably haven't opened OneNote on this computer in six months, seven months, something like that. Uh, fired it up and I had a notebook sitting in front of me with uh, a, a, a bunch of sections, a bunch of pages, things like that. And it was complaining that it had to sync. So uh, one of the really nice things about the OneNote client is uh, we can pop it up, we can attach it and associate it with uh, multiple accounts, whether those are Microsoft accounts, whether those are work accounts, and we can have all these notebooks in one place syncing and doing their thing. Uh, unfortunately, the OneNote UI really isn't great about telling you uh, which account you're working in at any given time. So you just kind of have to know based on maybe the name of a notebook or something else. Um, so of course I had this notebook called personal and then web in parentheses. So that's my default notebook uh, inside of OneDrive consumer. So that's associated with a Microsoft account. Uh, problem is, I have, you know, uh, three, four, five, six, seven, eight uh, Microsoft accounts running around, uh, and sometimes they match up with uh, work email addresses, sometimes they match up with personal email addresses, uh, they came from demos or, or, or things like that. So I had this notebook staring me in the face. It had a uh, particular section that I was looking at it called work stuff. Uh, so I figured with a nice section like work stuff and a bunch of um, PowerShell pages and things like that, uh, it was probably associated with my uh, Microsoft account or my, my easy ID that matches my work email address. So I click the sync button and up pops the window and I type in, you know, here's my Microsoft account. Let's, let's go off to the races and do this. Uh, and that was the wrong account. And apparently OneNote on my Mac decided that because that was the wrong account, uh, we're just going to delete all the pages in this notebook because we don't know who it is and we don't think we can sync and uh, it kind of corrupted itself. So I figured, hey, no problem. This, this is okay. This is solvable. Uh, I'm just going to go ahead and log into OneDrive as the right user, go and find that file, um, do a manage versions thing, and, and I'll take a step back and it'll be okay. We'll recover everything. Uh, unfortunately, OneDrive... Uh, doesn't have that version recovery for OneNote notebooks. Um, so OneNote has its own recovery mechanisms built into it for pages. So I can recover a previous version of a page, but once that page is deleted, there's nothing that can be done about it. Uh, it's gone. Uh, there's no way to take a step back in time. 
uh, even through the OneDrive or through the OneDrive website, which I can do with Word docs and everything else. So it's kind of uh, frustrating to not be able to do that with OneNote notebooks. But uh, long story short, I synced the wrong account. It got rid of uh, every page uh, in every section of that notebook. Uh, and there was no way for me to recover it. So I lost like two years of, of notes that were inside of there. Um, the good thing is, uh, like I said, I'm not a big user of OneNote, so I don't think it was anything too important. Uh, if it was, I'll just have to dig back in the brain bank and, and dig it out. Um, but, you know, that's a that, that's a consumer thing um, that I'm having issues with. Uh, and, you know, I imagine, you know, as, as I have conversations with, with friends and family and things like that, that's just the consumer space, uh, working on the other side in the enterprise space as well, uh, with some of these other offerings that Microsoft has, uh, you know, th that stuff's just as hard, uh, or it can be just as confusing for, uh, end users. That... That whole thing of you know keeping your end users engaged and helping them to understand just how uh, how a product works can be pretty antagonizing and pretty painful at times. Uh, something that has come up a couple times recently for me, um, kind of in the same vein, uh, is a lot of folks that <clears throat> um, you know work with in the SharePoint community use things like OneDrive and OneDrive for Business. And I ran into somebody at a, uh, a training event and they, you know, said, oh man, I'm having all these problems. Uh, I can't seem to find my files. I thought I had them up in OneDrive for business. Uh, I thought I was dragging and dropping them into the right folder. Um, I just got a new PC and all of a sudden I, I went to go sync and all my documents were gone. And I kind of scratched my head and I said, you know, uh, were you using OneDrive for business or were you using OneDrive? And he said, you know, what's the difference? And I showed him the two icons installed uh, on that uh, hunkin' piece of laptop that I have, that precision box that I carry around with me at times. And he said, you know, I, I think it might have been the other one. And by the other one, he meant OneDrive. And so on that uh, on that box that he now had, he didn't actually have the OneDrive client. And I, I asked him, you know, hey, uh, do you know what you know what your credentials were and he didn't really have a clue so we tried a couple things and it ended up being that his org id was actually the exact same as his microsoft id so if you're not familiar with the difference between the two there is a bit of a difference and i think you and i both know what that is but for folks that don't know a microsoft id is basically like a hotmail.com or outlook.com or your own email address uh, they call them easy ids and as scott likes to say there's nothing quite easy about the easy id um, but yeah, so he fortunately was able to plug that back into the regular OneDrive client and all of a sudden, you know, he was, I won't say he was dancing for joy, but he was excited to see that his content was not actually lost. So, uh, good times with that. Um, but you know, the OneDrive for business client, the caveat with it was that, uh, you know, he started pushing his content over there and he started going through trying to figure out how to do permissioning. And he was slightly confused by the fact that if you permission a document inside of a folder, that that document doesn't automatically re-inherit permissions from the folder level uh, that it sits inside of. And so kind of had to take a step back and mention to him that was one of the infamous gotchas of OneDrive for Business being based on SharePoint. So uh, I can see, you know, for end users coming from the world of Dropbox or Box or Google Drive or OneDrive and coming and using, you know, the enterprise products at work and seeing that they work, you know, entirely differently can be just as frustrating for those end users. But not to go off on a, a rabbit trail or a diatribe, um, something else we had, and you mentioned it last week, uh, about the Google Compute Engine. And I went back and did a little bit of research and found, sure enough, they're still just offering Windows Server 2008 R2. So if you have some workloads out there that you want to put up in the cloud and, you know, you want to get out of the Windows Server 2003 R2 space because all that stuff's going to expire in July anyway, uh, you can use Google. Um, the way that they set up their virtual machines is pretty much through command line. So if you're a command line junkie, it's ready for you. Um, and you can get those Windows Server 2008 R2 boxes up and operational pretty quickly. Um, hopefully they'll have other operating systems coming down the path in the future, but it looks like that's all there is in the Windows side up in Google at the moment. Um, 
So, Scott, I'm, I'm kind of curious. Do uh, you have any Valentine's Day plans scheduled out for tomorrow? Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, big plans. Uh, so, actually, uh, some of our friends are going out of town for the weekend, so my wife agreed to uh, watch their children. So, for Valentine's Day, uh, they're going to go away, they're going to have a good time uh, as adults, and we're going to watch their kids. So, Hopefully there's a little bit of an IOU in there. My wife keeps telling me that. So I think we're going to look at uh, ditching our kids with them, taking a trip up to, to Cannes, see, see the reef or something like that in a couple of weeks. But uh, talk to me in a couple of days about that. And, and then, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll figure that out and, and see what's going on there. Okay. That's uh, huh. I thought it was going to be a different answer. I know that when you all, had your wedding anniversary that you went up to the Great Barrier um, Reef, and that was, from what I remember, a pretty awesome time for you guys. So hopefully, yeah, hopefully you're able to make it out and, uh, you know. Yeah, we're going to try and do a little bit of a repeat of that and, and see what we can make happen, you know, balance that between client stuff at work. And, uh, you know, I think we've racked up enough IOUs that uh, we're going to be able to make this 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 little trip uh, come off just fine. Cool. Um, for myself, uh, you know, it's uh, one of those things where I kind of chuckle, but uh, I'm actually going to a wedding, uh, on Valentine's day. So hopefully for the couple, um, they will remember it always affectionately as their day, but, uh, it's kind of one of those interesting things where it falls on a Saturday and at least here in the U S it's a long weekend for, I guess the federal government and a lot of organizations that work with the federal government. So you see a lot of folks taking that three day weekend and making it into a wedding weekend and what better way than to share it with Valentine's day, but moving on. So I think that's the end of the follow up, and, you know, we're only 26 minutes in. So hopefully uh, we're able to burn through the rest of this two items, uh, two bullets here, uh, shortly. Um, some of the things going on in the DC area, uh, we've got an IT pro camp, <coughs> IT pro camp coming up next weekend. Uh, it's at the Chevy Chase Microsoft office. Um, I think the address is 5404 Wisconsin Avenue Northwest. Uh, it's not in DC. It's in Chevy Chase. It's right across the line from DC though. So if you're in the area, definitely swing on by. There's 600 folks registered. Depending on the weather, that could be 500 folks because it's crappy weather outside, or it could be 200 folks because it's 60 degrees outside and people are just getting over seven inches of snow. So who knows? Uh, first weekend, second weekend of March is SPS Philly. So <clears throat> hopefully that'll be a good event. I believe the registration's open for that. Uh, if you can make it back, we can sneak over to Dunkin' Donuts. Maybe, maybe not. And then... Uh, could be a bit of a stretch. Yeah, could be. Um, Princeton Sug. I don't know if you remember that group up in, uh, with Tom Daly and Greg Gallup or not Greg Gallup, uh, Greg and a couple of the other folks, Becky, um, they've actually moved. I think they're actually meeting in the Microsoft office up there in Jersey, but I'll be making the trip up in a couple weeks to speak at that. Um, looking forward to it. I'm still trying to figure out if that's going to be a, uh, drive up or taking the train kind of depends on what the weather forecast is. So. And then you mentioned uh, there's some other goodness going on with the Office 365 folks, Scott? Yeah. So, the, uh, you know, for everybody that doesn't know, uh, they have these summit events. So uh, think of them as two days of free training, access to uh, members from uh, product groups, uh, PFEs, uh, those premier field engineers, uh, folks from Microsoft Consulting Services. Um, they do these around the world. Uh, right now, uh, they're out in uh, Amsterdam, so uh, one of our mutual acquaintances, uh, Jeremy Thake, uh, he works for the Office 365 team, does a lot of uh, developer evangelism for them. Uh, he's out in Amsterdam right now. Uh, I believe their next event uh, is going to be in Sydney uh, in March, so I'll be attending that one. Um, but just a great resource for uh, folks to get out and uh, get some uh, real-world feedback and real-world interactions uh, with Microsoft employees uh, who can help drive um, some of the decisions that are going into these products and kind of get a view of where they're going with things at the cadence they're moving at and, you know, where their heads are at as they move through things. Um, so, you know, again, just a nice free uh, event to, to get out there and uh, interact with everybody. 
No, I've been to a couple of the uh, Summit events, and you're right. They're definitely kind of a good time to get to know some of the folks in the product group, as well as to convey feedback and hopefully pick up a thing or two along the way. Uh, some of those summits, um, I want to say hey, uh, the team that actually participates in it does quite a good job on making certain they you know, come together. Uh, I want to say I saw some photos on Facebook of Neil and a couple of the guys uh, hanging out with some lions, maybe. Uh, I believe they were in Africa doing one of the different summits, but I could be wrong about that. I just remember seeing the picture of Neil and going, holy smokes, you got quite the sunburn. So hopefully uh, hopefully that crew, as they travel around the planet evangelizing on Office 365, uh, makes it safely throughout the entire way. But uh, some other stuff, you know, going on here, at least in the U.S., uh, if you live in Fairfax County or the surrounding area and you've been down to Duck, North Carolina, um, you're probably familiar with a place called Duck Donuts. And if you're not, you should be. Uh, they're opening one up in Herndon, Virginia. So I want to say the opening date is sometime this summer. But uh, if you're in the mood for a donut, Herndon, Virginia, Duck Donuts, they're basically a cake donut, uh, but you can order them to however you please. So, Scott, you'd. You'd probably dig this. Uh, you can get it with like maple syrup instead of chocolate or some other glaze. And then you can have them sprinkle bacon on it because what's better than, you know, a donut with bacon. Um, so I'm looking forward to hopefully seeing that place open up. I know my nephews uh, love that place as well. We've taken them there a couple times when we've been down at the beach. Um, and I know you, you had a discovery of some Dunkin' Donuts there in Australia. Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, flew it back with me, right? Uh, we really don't have Dunkin' Donuts here. Uh, Starbucks, uh, is probably the most American coffee that, that you can get. Uh, drip coffee is just not a popular thing here. So, uh, you know, it's just one of those things, one of those nice little, uh, creature comforts that when, when we make a trip back or when people come out to visit us, uh, from the States, we usually have them, uh, bring a cup of coffee so we, we can figure out what's going on there and, and get everything uh, settled out nicely. Um, still haven't quite uh, acclimated to all the espressos and everything else out on this side. Uh, so sometimes it's nice to just sit at home, uh, fire up the drip coffee machine, uh, and get a cup of joe. So I remember you were telling me back in January that uh, the drip coffee machine you had was one that was kind of put together and haphazardly. I, I remember when you initially moved over there to Australia that you were heartbroken that your Keurig machine wouldn't work unless you had the appropriate uh, power transformer of sorts to be able to power the, I want to say, what, 1,500 watts of power required to get that thing to uh, spit out some beautiful coffee for you in the morning? Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's again, it's the land of espresso. So finding those, those drip makers and percolators and things can be uh, a little bit difficult sometimes. So I actually looked out, I found a nice little uh, drip coffee maker uh, down at Target, which Target in Australia has the same logo as Target in the US, but it's not the same. Um, it's run by like the Shineheart Wig Company or something like that over here. Um, so, you know, I picked mine up nice and cheap. I, it took me three or four months to actually find that because uh, the only thing I was seeing around were percolators that, you know, run upwards of $100, $150. Um, so spending that much money just to drink, uh, crappy American coffee, um, you know, crappy American coffee is my thing. I really like that. I'd rather have coffee flavored coffee than, um, espresso or anything else most days of the week. Um, so spending that much money was a little bit of a stretch, but you know, this, this nice little $10 coffee maker I have, uh, does the trick and, and keeps the caffeine flowing. Remember just how much you like your coffee. And uh, I will say that, you know, I'm kind of one of those folks that if I don't have a cup of coffee by, eh, we'll say, 8 in the morning, that I can get a little bit of fussy uh, fussiness going on. Um, fortunately for me, I've been able to, you know, set the coffee maker to automatically wake up at 6 in the morning, brew, and be ready to go. So... Uh, I'm glad that you're able to find a percolator or I guess a drip coffee machine there that uh, is able to keep you out of trouble. Uh, you should come back to the States sometime soon so that you can have some coffee or, you know, just stay over there as long as you want. 
Um, but speaking of time, uh, Google apparently is giving away $300 credits on their compute engine. So if you do want to go try out that Windows Server 2008 R2 image that's nice and shiny with all of its patches, you can go out and uh, sign up for that Google uh, Compute Engine free trial and try that out. I know uh, Azure has something similar. I want to say it's a $200 credit that has to be used up in 30 days. So if you have a workload that uh, <clears throat> isn't going to take quite as long or is going to take longer and you don't need quite the same power that you're going to get with Azure, uh, you might actually consider trying that out on the Google Compute Engine. So something to try. I, I personally have not tried it out yet, but thought that it might be neat to try out sometime soon. Yeah, there's all sorts of free trials out there for all of these products. So Google Compute Engine has theirs. Uh, you can do a year of uh, Amazon for free in, in their free tier, um, operate some of their little T1 micro instances, kind of these um, shared CPU uh, instances. If you want to take a look at IaaS and, and play around with uh, some of those services for free. Um, and like you said, Azure as well has a nice free trial, uh, $200 credit. Um, and then depending on what kind of programs you're involved in. Uh, so if you happen to be uh, an MSDN developer or something like that, you can also get uh, monthly credits for Azure that way. There, there's all sorts of ways to uh, kind of get, get in there and figure some of these things out and uh, at least have a go at them and, and see where they're going to work uh, within your organization or... Uh, maybe within your startup, uh, things like that. This, you know, stuff like BizSpark, uh, if you want to hop on board and start getting all sorts of different benefits as well. So if you've got that small business, kind of go down that path. Um, one thing that uh, I do kind of want to make a mention of, though, is uh, Azure, something else that they put out there that was kind of interesting or funny to me was that uh, they were allowing express route free of charge uh, through June. So I don't know if you saw that article, but to me, it just seemed, uh, seemed hilarious because for those of you that aren't familiar with express route, uh, it's basically the ability to have uh, basically a circuit between your data center and effectively Microsoft. Uh, you're using kind of the MPLS switching that's available uh, through different service providers out there. Um, effectively, it gives you what uh, I know, Scott, you and I have done many times before, setting up either a site-to-site -site VPN into Azure or a point-to-site VPN, um, but basically not having to go through that mess. You're just setting up Express Route, and it's like plugging you know, a network cable between two racks. Um, to me, it's just kind of funny because it's free trial, up to 10 megabits. So if you're expecting to hop on and use ExpressRoute uh, for something that will give you kind of that gigabit power between <clears throat> your rack and Microsoft, uh, you're still gonna have to pay for that. But if you don't, do wanna go try it out and you know, kind of do the security testing of whatnot in your environment, it's uh, six months to go try it out for free, which is pretty handy if uh, you're a small business and trying to figure out whether or not ExpressRoute is right for you. Yeah, we were talking about this a little bit earlier this week at the Azure uh, user group here in Sydney. So uh, it's an interesting offer. Um, I think it helps sell that hybrid story uh, quite a bit, uh, push some things into that space. Um, again, it's about trying these things out and seeing where they fit uh, within, or within an organization and, and what's going on there. Um, I think the important thing to remember about this is so um, Express Route being quote unquote free, uh, that's free on Microsoft's side. That's not going to be free through whoever your internet provider is. So uh, if you happen to colo with uh, Equinox or out here um, in Australia, if you happen to have a, a business relationship with Telstra, um, you're still going to owe that service provider. Uh, some money for that MPLS circuit and getting all those um, pieces turned on. So it's nice that Microsoft's made uh, their side of the equation free. Um, and, you know, I can see how they're not going to be able to do that uh, with all these service providers and everything else as well. Um, but there might be a cost associated with that. You know, it's not going to be let's flick a switch and we're going to play with this for six months and it's not going to cost us anything. 
Um, it is going to cost you a little bit, but it's going to cost you um, less than it would have because at least on, on the Azure side of things, um, that credit's been taken care of for you. Uh, as ExpressRoute kind of gets built out on the Microsoft side, hopefully we'll see more and more businesses able to make use of it so that they're not having to go through the pains of those site-to-site -site VPNs. But definitely cool stuff. Uh, something else that's cool, and I'm still questioning my using of that wording, um, <clears throat> basically being able to connect your Azure org ID with your MSDN account. So being able to kind of put in place that hybrid, as I'll call it, um, for your accounts. But the caveat to all this is really it's not a connection, I guess. It's more before you spin up that Azure access or <coughs> that Azure benefit that you get with your MSDN subscription, um, the ability to tie it to an org ID somewhere else. So uh, I know for a lot of organizations, they don't realize this. And so their developers have that MSDN subscription. They go through, they spin up Azure. Uh, six months later, they leave, their MSDN subscription gets reallocated to someone else, and their Azure benefit continues to persist with whoever it was originally because it was tied to a different account. Um, but, you know, something that uh, is kind of neat is the fact that you can kind of do that management where uh, prior to you going in and pressing the access Azure benefit, uh, linking your org ID that you've got set up for Office 365 or Azure in general uh, with your MSDN account's live ID. And then when you create your uh, actual Azure account, um, it goes through and creates your subscription, ties it to that org ID that you had set up with Office 365 so that <clears throat> when you're actually just going to log in, everything just works. Um, there is a way you can go through and transfer, if you've already created that uh, Azure subscription, uh, you can transfer it to an org ID. Uh, you just have to open up a service ticket and say, hi, my name is. Um, once you've got that, it should just be that easy. And as you like to say so lovingly, just work. Um, I can say that having done a few different subscription moves over the past six months, uh, where I'm taking ownership or you know, working with someone and they roll off a project and we need to roll it to somebody else's account, uh, that can be a little bit frustrating because there are things you have to kind of check for to make certain that those permissions move over properly. So hopefully that'll be something that uh, they work the bugs out of a little bit more and we'll see hopefully pick up and work a little bit better rolling forward. If you're curious about that, the link is in the show notes. So that's a neat little FAQ article under MSD and they've got there for you. Yeah, uh, you know, one of the interesting things they bury in that in that particular uh, piece is uh, you've always got to remember that um, MSDN benefits are individual benefits, so they are tied to a person. Um, so from Microsoft's side of things, they're, 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 they're trying to offer a way to get a little bit more control um, and, and kind of rigor and governance around that side of things for organizations. So if I haven't gone out and bought a one-off MSDN, but my MSDN subscription is provided um, by my employer or, or through an MPN account, things like that, um, you know, they, they want to give organizations the warm fuzzies around being able to control that piece. Um, but at the end of the day, Microsoft's control is really uh, giving organizations the ability to do this. Uh, there's no way to uh, force your users into it. Um, so Microsoft's stance is uh, you need to have uh, clear policies and procedures for your employees. So your employees, when, when you onboard a new employee, uh, you have to kind of have it spelled out for them that they're not going to go activate their benefit um, unless they do it through this org account provisioning. Uh, or else you, you do end up with this weird space. I know for me, um, I have multiple uh, MSDN subscriptions, so sometimes we uh, pick them up from clients along the way if we get long-term projects we're on, um, or I happen to be associated with a couple of different partnerships, so I've, I've got multiple MPN subscriptions, things like that. Um, some tied to Microsoft accounts, some tied to org accounts, uh, so it can get a little confusing in there. So uh, it, it is just a, a policy and procedure thing, so technically feasible, sure, um, but there's nothing to force people into it. Uh, so organizations, you know, whoever manages that licensing component for MSDN, 
uh, it needs to take a step back and, and talk to their organization and, and their developers uh, about how they're going to be uh, provisioning those resources and turning them on. Thing that uh, comes to mind for me, at least, is the whole authentication experience. So <clears throat> I know for a lot of organizations, they go through and they add things like Microsoft Online and Office365.com into uh, IE's trusted sites zone. And so when they do that and they set up ADFS and they do all their DirSync fun, uh, if they went through and they created a live account and they used that same uh, DNS entry or DNS uh, suffix, I guess, that the org ID actually has, uh, you run into some goofiness where you think that you're going to go and get prompted to log into a uh, Microsoft account and then you see a lovely, sorry, you don't have a subscription. So hopefully, you know, as individuals uh, kind of come on board to your organization, you can point them to say, hey, you should tie this to your org ID. Uh, that way, at least that authentication process works a little bit easier. So that's my hope, at least. Yeah, so I think we're running out on time here. Um, I don't know that we have enough time to get into too many more of these things. I know you really wanted to talk about Legos a little bit, uh, so we can do some quick updates there if you want. Um, I know that uh, around Christmas, I was having a lot of trouble being back in the U.S., finding a uh, Millennium Falcon for uh, my youngest child. Uh, so we ended up getting him a, a Star Destroyer instead, which uh, we built out. It opens up. Uh, you know, I was putting pictures up on Facebook. Um, I think, uh, you know, one of our uh, mutual acquaintances, Andrew Connell, was seeing pictures of that and saying, oh, I got to go buy one because uh, now it opens up. I think you have the Millennium Falcon. Uh, how's that one working out for you? So the Falcon's about two-thirds the way done. Uh, it also is similar to the Star Destroyer in that it opens up. Uh, I think it's, you know, it's kind of neat how you can do that. You can open it up. You can see the little table. You can watch Chewie rip the arms off C-3PO, beat him. Uh, hopefully my nephews will not get near it because I would hate to see little C-3PO have his arms ripped off. That would just be sad. Um, but likewise, you know, I'm, I'm hoping to pick up one or two more sets for this summer. I'm not quite certain what they're going to be. I don't know if they're going to be uh, Star Wars oriented or if they're going to be something more along the lines of like Guardians of the Galaxy. Uh, uh, that would probably be a bad idea because I would probably just carry the little I, uh, the Groot character around with me at all times and hold him up and just say, I am Groot. Um, but we'll see. Uh, something else that popped up and maybe maybe I can somehow coax myself into thinking that it's an okay purchase is that uh, shield helicarrier. So I don't know if you saw that it came out and I think, uh, I think we talked about it a while ago, but the fact that it was something around the ballpark of $350 just kind of made my eyeballs look at it and lust after it just a little bit. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I think you should skip the helicarrier. Uh, and go straight on to the Super Star Destroyer. I know you said you wanted to get out of that Star Wars universe, but uh, with that new movie and everything coming out, I think spending you know four thousand, forty-two hundred dollars on a Lego set uh, seems like a great place to put your money uh, that's, and spend a little bit of time. That's completely justifiable. I mean, I, I see no reason not to do that. Uh, I want to say we actually saw that thing when we were up in New York City a couple years ago presenting at the New York City SharePoint user group when we went up into uh, FAO Schwartz. And for if you have not seen the Star Destroyer that Scott's talking about, it is somewhere around the ballpark of three and a half feet long, two feet tall. It's substantial. Uh, I think if we could uh, perhaps convince Andrew to pick that one up or maybe even Joel Ward, uh, you know, we could maybe help him out have a little powwow to get together and do that. Um, the only other thing I wanted to mention is Legos. They actually do have some other uses. Uh, I know a lot of folks, parents and whatnot, uh, they see the Legos and they look at them with disdain because they know they're going to end up on the floor and they're going to be going downstairs at two in the morning to get a glass of water for their child. They're going to step on one and they're going to scream out in pain and someone will call 911. Not a good thing. Um, but they do have some useful purposes. Uh, I remember last June, there was an article floating around on the internet that had 
our friendly little Legos holding our charging cables for us. So they also, their hands are perfectly sized for USB cables. I don't know if it's something that uh, the folks from IETF put together, but, you know, it's kind of neat that they actually just perfectly fit for the little Lego guy's hands. Um, I don't know if you're using them for that, but I've tried it a little bit, and I just have found that I have to use the craggle to hold their feet down. Yeah, you know, Legos tend to, uh, we, I build them with the kids, and then they tend to go to the kids, so our Star Destroyer is already in pieces. We've pretty much lost the bridge. Uh, we still have the ability to fire uh, a laser here or there, but, you know, the, those things don't last too long. Uh, you know, just a quick real-time update. I'm, I'm looking on Amazon right now. So those Super Star Destroyers, they were up to several thousand dollars for Christmas. They're down to the low, low price of 798 US dollars right now. Uh, with Prime and that two-day shipping, um, I think you could pull this off and maybe have one built uh, by the next time we talk. It's only 3,100 pieces. Yeah, I, I think that's doable for you in a few hours. Well, I mean, yeah, I could, uh, I could skip the wedding and... People would be like, Dan, what, what's up? And I'd probably get in a lot of trouble for that. So I don't think I'm actually going to do that. Uh, but that's not to say that, you know, for a summer activity that I might not think about doing that. And you're right, $798, only 10 in stock. Uh, that might be something to do this summer. So anyway, uh, I think that's all we've got time for, Scott. Um, fabulous listeners out there. We... Hope that you've made it through uh, and your ears are still intact. Uh, if you've got feedback or questions, definitely feel free to send them to us at brewery.fm at gmail.com. And we will try and address your feedback. If you've got a question about things that we're up to, definitely feel free to toss it there as well. And we will you know, answer those on air when we get a chance. So uh, from Fairfax, Virginia and from Balmain, Australia, uh, this is Dan and Scott signing off. Thanks so much for joining us.